On this episode of Restore It All, we've got a new solution for the problem of ransomware attacking Windows-based backup servers. This one's aimed specifically at Veeam, but it looks like there are many other applications. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restored All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I have with me the guy that I think is going to help me find a new recording platform, <laughs> Prasada Valiandi. How's it going, Prasada? I'm good, Curtis. I Well, so I don't think it's all doom and gloom for the podcast mm. recording platforms yet. Um, we'll just have to wait and see. Let me introduce today's guest. This is a unique one. I've known and known of our two guests today. And by the way, it's unique. We don't. We rarely have two guests. I'm going to have to figure out how to fit you on the on the uh, Brady Bunch screen. I've known of one guest for almost as long as I've been in backups, and I was an admirer of his early work. And we'll talk about that a little bit. And then our other guest. I've known him for quite a while as well, and uh, we've we've gotten in trouble a little bit here and there uh, together. So first, I want to welcome the CEO of Growl Data, Herbert Growl. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, gentlemen, for inviting me. And uh, and welcome, of course, to David Surf. How's it going, David? Very good, Curtis. Good to see you. So, uh, so by the way, the fact, you know, I knew, I knew that we were talking to Grow Data today and I knew that, or at least I believed at the time that you were uh, the same company or a follow-on company from the company that I knew way back in the day. What I did not expect is to have a guest whose name matched the name of the company. So that was a big surprise to me. So let's go, Herbert, let's go back in the day. The first time I remember seeing you or seeing, you know, hearing of your, your, your company were these gigantic tape libraries. And I remember back in the day looking at them going, that looks amazing. Like it was like, they were just these ginormous tape libraries that here I was, I was an early Spectrologic customer. And they had these little, you know, these little carousel things. So I was dealing with like 30 tapes and you were dealing with thousands of tapes. And I remember going, holy cow. And one one thing I remember was that the libraries were so big and they were so cost effective that it actually, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. What I remember was that it actually cost more to fill it up with tape than it did to buy the library itself, right? The, the library was so large and so cost-effective that that was the case. Um, you want to talk a little bit about those old days? Yep. Well, I started <clears throat> already very early in the 1980s. Uh, our background was machine building. So I took the company from my father and we were uh, automotive suppliers and machine builders. So we were not, a, not an IT company. And IBM brought this uh, tape to the market and had no automation. And storage tech was already there and IBM had nothing. 
So we filled that gap right. and built a table library. In the first days, weird enough, without any software connected to the host. This came over time through the customers. But we have been building these really cool table libraries, and they were called mixed media libraries because we could automate anybody's uh, tape drives from Hitachi, from other vendors as well, even in the mixed mode. And so we were the exact counterpart of Storage Tech, all from us. Right. And we had kind of more an open approach. And and the second generation, we introduced a Quattro Tower. This was a cool patent we had. On one surface, the cartridges were moving inside small towers. So we could have mm-hmm. 5,000 IBM cartridges on a small footprint. And we were shipping table libraries around the world when EMS joined my company. And a very large library would have 30,000 IBM tapes. So six yeah. of these towers in a row and a tape robot, a traveling moving robot on one side and if necessary on the second side. So we had a double robot system and 30,000 tapes in a row. And what we also could do, we had a special uh, tape format implemented called D2, which only the US government had. If you want, I still have on my on my drawer here a, a D2 tape from these days. And we converted our tape libraries to this special technology. And then we shipped through EMS to the famous unknown customers to the famous government agency under us. The NSA bought in 1995 a tape library with a capacity of 400 terabyte. At that time, my biggest customer, the Deutsche Bank, had five. And we said, holy cow, who in the world needs 400 terabyte and what for? But then somebody from EMS explained me what these guys were doing, all these satellites in the Iraq, and they had eight supercomputers from Cray, and this was awfully expensive. So all this data came from satellites in uh, Longley or whatever, down to earth in this uh, data center underground and eight supercomputers and then an HSM of the early days called FileSurf. I think yep. I think Quantum is still selling this today. <laughs> and FileSurf yeah, moving they data. Are. They are. Yeah, FileSurf and moving data to tape out. And this was, of course, a breakthrough for my small company because then we sold big time uh, machines to the DOD and in, in the US, of course. Unfortunately, then yeah. uh, EMS, uh, actually the mother company of EMS E-Systems got bought by Raytheon. So the missile buys the satellite. And then the whole mm. thing got difficult and they wanted to sell this off and I couldn't buy my company back. So I sold my remaining shares then to AD- ADIC, bought then EMS. And right. I had restarted crowd data in Germany. Again, sold my shares, and two weeks later, I was on the market again with a new company, Crowdata, which is the company today, because gotcha. my old name was not so important anymore because EMS wanted to have EMS data storage, and I was Crowdata storage. Mm-hmm. 
Ah, well, Eric wanted to nice. get me back, but then I said, no, I, I do it on my own. And then we entered the market first, again with a table library called Infinistar, but this was already an appliance. Software, server, disk, and tape in one device. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we sold this nicely in Germany. Until uh, one point in time, it was not possible anymore for a small company to sell hardware. Mm. And then we had extremely nice products, hardware products, tape libraries, new generation, smaller, uh, easy, lean, cost-effective, but we had to sell this. And then I met David, this was about 2007, and then I restarted the company again, the same company, but I restarted as a software company. Mm -hmm. So, and then, of course, tape, HSM was our background, so we had a product which even IB, um, HPE, OEM'd. It was on their price list as file system extender, mm -hmm. but not very successful because HPE was in the terminal, so many products, and we kind of were sitting between the chairs, and then HPE stopped the contract, and we sold it under the Grau logo, and over time, we worked our portfolio, and in the last four years, we have developed a complete, almost complete new product portfolio, which now re re uh, looks really good. And that's why I'm, I'm in the mode of re-entering to the U.S. with my friend David and sell our nice products to the U.S. And I've been coming and traveling all along the last years. Still have partners and friends and, and no customers anymore, but this will hopefully change soon. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, David. You know, when, when we started talking, um, about, you know, I, I discovered this other product, this newer product, right? And I had no idea, right? Because I, I think this latest product is absolutely going after a problem that is really important, right? Um, the, 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 slight, the slight problem called ransomware, right? Um, and um, in fact, I just... Just a week ago, I came out with an article in Network World that talks, the, the title was uh, Ransomware is Coming for Your Backups, right? That's coming for your backup server specifically. And the this latest product is, is, is aiming at solving that really new challenging problem. Um, but uh, I had no idea when, when we started talking that we were going to be talking about a person that, that I've, <laughs> that I've been involved with for 30 years. David, what, what do you think, um, uh, what's your goal as you, as you move this company in, you know, into the U S or to expand it into the U S? Well, Curtis, the phase we're at is awareness. First of all, um, I think you're, it was funny how we, did re-loop together, which was that Dave Russell and I were talking and he had mentioned he had heard this podcast talking about Blocky for Beam, right. which is the product you were just mentioning. Right. And he didn't mention it was you. Yeah. And so I had to go look it up and then I was oh, like, well, it's Curtis. Uh, wow. And I, so we reached out. And so, uh, so there's the point is that awareness issue is that um, Grau has done exceptionally well in Europe. Uh, working with channel partners and around uh, the the customer base uh, for Veeam, because as you mentioned, uh, ransomware is such a critical issue right now. And um, the the way the Blocky product works is a zero trust that in, it really 
uh, brings a level of security to the large, uh, the largest install base for Veeam or these Windows users. And uh, this gives them a very simple, easy right. deploy, quick solution. And that went like wildfire through the reseller partners. So Europe behaves a little different, right? Channels operate a little differently than American channels and uh, resellers. And so they've done incredibly well with this traction and awareness. So we'd like to bring that awareness and that success uh, out of Europe uh, and not just to North America, but globally, because, you know, Veeam, of course, is global, uh, has a really strong footprint in South America and Asia, and you have a and the majority of their customers are Windows users. So getting that message out would certainly be the, the goal. And I think the product speaks for itself because there are no real options. It's either you either I have Windows and I do something or I don't. And where that's something you can do to bring security and cyber. Currently, we have four products, three of them brand almost brand new. And we have a product which we sell since many years very successfully. It's called File Lock. It's a Windows-based software for compliant archiving. And we have a KPMG certificate that nobody can alter data after it has been archived. And we have sold this product about 1,500 times in Europe. And it's based on the filter driver technology. And it's embedded in Windows, so you can have it on a Windows server, very simple, on a physical or virtual machine. Just install the software and this filter driver makes sure nobody, not even the admin, can alter data which is so supposed to be archived for 10 years or whatever. It has the same API as the Snaplog API from NetApp. Okay? Oh, that's one that Persona should know. And, and the Snaplog was the role model, and this API is um, not protected. So we have the same API, single file retention, like a Snaplog. But we are independent. We run on the Windows server, and we scale as much Windows scales from 100 gigabyte for a small company to multiple terabyte in large sites. Cluster-ready, everything. And this product is pretty cool and stable because filter driver technology was not so stable 20 years ago. We produced blue screens in the very early days. All the Veeam guys asked me that. But since uh, Microsoft introduced the mini filter technology, so an official interface for filters, more than 10 years we have zero, zero problems with the product. Very cool product, very lean. And one customer said, Herbert, data in FileLock cannot be altered by nobody, not even by ransomware. That's cool, but I cannot buy a compliant archive for my data. I mean, the backup should be able to override it. So we took this idea and said we create a new Brocky, uh, product called Blocky. And this is like a filter driver, this is like a sheet metal plate, a warm, a warm shield. Nobody can go through it. And then we drill a small hole. And in the small hole, one guy says, nobody can pass except the Veeam application. And if the Veeam application comes, this application always has to show a passport and a fingerprint, like if I enter the US, okay? And that's why we can block everybody, even the good and the bad, except the one application which we whitelist. And that was Blocky. We also have for IBM TSM a big customer, but this was the first one. And 
the selling was uh, the uh, you know, word, uh, we call this word on mouth. Customer said, wow. It's explained in 20 minutes. It's installed in 10 minutes. It's so effective, costless, and it's really cool and effective. And that's why we sold 500 customers only in German-speaking countries in the last four years. Among them, pretty big names. From small Soho customers to really, really large international corporations. And that was really, uh, really a home run for us because we could use the technology which was proven over many, many years to a different field. And so it sounds like this this grew out of that the the audit proof archiving uh, line that you had the yep. file lock from there. Yep. Um, and then you also you've also got a couple of other products. You talk about metadata mining and the tape object archive. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, of course, tape is our background as we talked, and tape will never go away. So we have a product which we have on the market since um, almost twenty years now. Is a stable product, was a bit aged, classical tape HSM, like other products. And we have customers, mm -hmm. big customers, like Max Planck Institute with multiple petabyte and 10 of these. And we have a legacy install base. And some time ago, we decided that we do a new architecture because we think tape will never go away next whatever years. It's a niche market. Right. But we are an expert in this niche market, and I have customers which I want to lead to the next generation. And that's why we developed a product called Extreme Store. And this is now an object storage product. It's a scalable object storage software with S3 to tape. That's the difference. And with this so, object. So basically, I. I interface with it via the S3 protocol correct, and then you correct. put it on tape. Uh, maybe you know the Black Pearl from Spectralogic because we mentioned that name. Right. And that's kind of a product. Well, we not we compete not so much in Germany, but in the US, this would be our major competitor. But this mm -hmm. is a market where only very few companies blame. In Europe, I see two. And we have, I think, the best architect architecture. Um, we have a scalable architecture. We have a no SQL database. We can scale this vertically into multi-billions and horizontally into multi-servers. And important in the tape world, if you have very small files and you have billions, you have to do containers. You cannot put small files on tape and retrieve a billion files from tape without containers. And that's why this container yeah. technology is important. And we recently did a test in a partner data center of 1.5 billion files in one bucket. And this is endless scalable. That's important. Nice. And then, of, nice. of course, we have a modern, modern web UI. Some guys like still the command line interface, but more <laughs> and more the younger guys on the web UI. And so we have some cool things around the product which is in this niche a cool product and now I have mentioned three and the three would normally be good enough 
for a mm -hmm. company crowd ADA with 30 people having an archival background. But I have a new product and that's really a cool product and that's called the Metadata Hub. Why do I have this product? Because my friend David Surf came four years ago. <laughs> he was just leaving his beloved company, Strongbox, and said, Herbert, you have to look at metadata. Yeah. And I said, why? This is old stuff. Metadata is old stuff. Because we use metadata like everybody else since 20 years. File size and last access, and this is HSM of old school. But if I explain you today that we have a very unique product, people say, how can that be? Because if you if you Google metadata, you find so many products which mention this. You have to define metadata as standard file system metadata, which is simple. Not as useful. <laughs> it's, it's useful for many virus scanners and everybody, yeah. but it's simple. Yeah. And then we have embedded metadata. And then you take very special file formats. And you go to a research lab, you go to a Max Planck Institute, which partners with Harvard, and they've won a special file format, which comes from the NASA, Nifty file. Oh, who is, what is that? <laughs> and then you look into this Nifty file, for example, and this file has 10,000 metadata tags. Holy cow, 10,000. And we have developed a technology how to extract these 10,000 embedded metadata tags and write them into a huge database. And now the research guy can say, I need all files which have this whatever dimension here and this dimension there, he does a Google kind of complex search. And out of his 10 million files, which are somewhere, he gets the right 2,000 files. And he can nice. narrow this down from 10,000 to 10,000 to 5,000, 2,000. And then he has the right data. And that's our job, find the right data. And we deliver them the right data to a KI platform, to an algorithm, to improve it and whatnot. Because I have also another company which is doing only medical data and we have huge amount of data, but you always need the right amount, the right data. And that's the job of the metadata hub. And then we go to the next one. This institute has a microscope from Zeiss, very special file format. Holy cow, 8,000 metadata tags. Mm. Next one, bioinformatic. I never heard these names before. <laughs> but now we have a technology how to extract this. That's why I call it deep data mining. We drill holes very, very deep. Same as an automotive. We have some of these here. <laughs> and they have a motor, motor test equipment. And this is spitting out files. And then we go there and they said, you know what? We would like to know which of these million files have the same parameter for minus 30 degrees, that amount of kilometer and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I said, you don't know that? No, how, how should we? 
nobody can do this manually and nobody can extract the data. So we build an extractor mm. for this special file format. And that's why we are unique. And you know, David, you you it sounds like you you sort of brought up this idea. Did, I, I'm I'm a little bit like that that last customer where how is this not already everywhere? <laughs> David, David told me, think? David explained me his product, which was a different product. This was right. all about storage management. All products are metadata for storage management. Move data around, get rid of the and get an adapt in. And all this is about storage. And I said, I want to get out of storage. I don't <laughs> want to sell terabytes anymore. I want to be in the analytics business. I want a Google-like for metadata. This is a different game. And we will go direction nice. to artificial intelligence in the next steps. So we will move completely away from this, how many data is here and on the island to move this back and forth and this is old and cold. This is kind of done. I, I'm just thinking about use cases other than that. I know the primary use cases you talked about, but just thinking about things like, I know, Curtis, we always talk about archive, right? And how do you find what's been archived because you don't know what server it came from, right? You no longer have that storage perspective, right? And Or even things like e-discovery-like use cases where it's like, hey, tell me information related to this subject or other things like that. It seems like what you've built, Herbert and David, is sort of an ability to centralize all of these different file formats or unique file formats and provide that value to the customer so they can run these queries on their own. So Absolutely. And yeah, I had I like... a, well, actually, David went to a Berlin research lab and kind of sold them the idea, but the product was not there. Mm. And I sold him the product now for a, a nice amount of money. And he was... Mr. Crow, finally I have a product. I've been waiting three years for a product. <laughs> and I said to my guys, maybe we have a, a unique selling point here because this guy is searching the market for three years in the US and everywhere. And he didn't find at least one product which could do the job. So there, so there are two separate wow. <clears throat> ways to look at it. One, one uh, as Herbert has outlined very well, which is we're trying to understand how to drive our business intelligence. How, how do we, and that's really in the application space, which is this ability to extract that metadata to have better insights and understanding and visibility, which has really nothing to do with where the file may be stored. But what there's a second use case, which is almost secondary, which is if I actually can understand what I have, then I can apply that to what I do with it by number of copies or does it need to have certain compliance or where do I keep it? How long do I keep it? So <clears throat> that that was the origin of where I had come from was more in the extract that metadata. So the world, you could look, you know, if we with hindsight, we can say, hey, we knew we had to have metadata to be able to drive the intelligence that we want to drive through AI and machine learning. We're, you can't get there without it. And so the, the difference would be is the approach to it. And so the elegance that, that's in the metadata hub is, is really that simplicity. Separate out the overhead that comes with the file management or trying to put a glo global namespace and all the other things that, that what Herbert was referencing, what I was trying to do, which was kind of all these various things and just focus really on the metadata. And, the, and so there are two really interesting things that were solved with this. 
um, which Herbert said, but let me just emphasize it. One is this rapid development capability for connecting to the file type. This was really a showstopper because if I have these unique elements and these customers could not connect to it, then it didn't matter what you would do. You had to solve that first. So Grau has solved that ability to A, connect. So that was the first part. And then the second part was on the backside, which is, okay, I've done the extraction. So this is almost like, think of ETL in databases, right? Extract, transform, and load. And except for with the with the metadata hub, we're extracting, we're transforming, and then we're connecting. And so either we allow through our native user interfaces a way for the, the user to just be able to directly access it, but more importantly, is that we can connect to the tools that they're already using. And so this really creates this feed to where they can leverage that data to drive that business, accelerate what they're trying to do, um, which because that's really what it's all about at the end of the day, right? They're, they have a problem to solve, and we're helping them solve that. So speaking about what it's all about, let's get to the let's get to the star of the show. I think here, yeah. uh, in terms of this podcast, um, you know, we, we we've talked a lot. We've had you know we've had Dave on. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about Veeam. We've talked a lot about just Windows-based backup systems, Veeam being, you know, Veeam and I think Veeam and Commvault would be the two biggest examples, right? Um, and the the risk, I think, that, that their customers are under because Windows being, as we all know, the number one attack vector for ransomware, right? And so the worry is that, uh, you know, it, it's been a while since I've installed Veeam for obvious reasons, but uh, by the way, I... I, I haven't thrown out our usual disclaimer. This is an independent podcast. I work for Druva. Persona works for Zoom. And uh, this is not a podcast of either company. And the um, the opinions that you hear are ours. And uh, also, be sure to rate us by uh, going to the, you know, your your favorite podcast app. Give us some stars. Give, some, give us some comments. Leave that some helps comments. other people find this podcast. Yeah. Absolutely. Feel free to tweet as long as Twitter is still, still, it's, it's still around. Um, and if you if you'd like to um, if you'd like to join the conversation, you can find me uh, at WC Preston on Twitter or W Curtis Preston at Gmail. And uh, we'd love to get you on the podcast. So, you know, this concern, right, is specifically like the default installation is on a Windows based backup server. Right. And then, um, and, and, and even the main, even if you use Linux as another, uh, storage device, you, the, the main server is still on windows and they do have this, the Linux based, uh, storage store. device now as, as a, yeah, as a, as a, as an answer to this. Um, obviously with their, with their hard Linux server does create a very robust option. I think the real differentiation, Curtis, is the customers when you look at how many Veeam customers are, are using Linux, when you look at their customer you know, demographics, it's broken out as the majority, um, the big majority are Windows users. And a large part of those customers aren't going to put a Linux server in. Because, you know, the guy that's running this, he's yeah. a Windows guy. And I'm not, you know, it's a religion thing almost at some point. And the larger corporations, it's out of simplicity. As Herbert mentioned, he's, we've got several uh, global international companies and they have maybe 100 plus sites and they're not going to run this with this complex uh, um, deployment. 
And where the blocky forbidden comes in is it's as Herbert mentioned, it, you're talking about from from the moment you learn about it to installing it is less than an hour. So the simplicity mm-hmm. makes it really easy for the Windows guys that don't have to do anything different, and now they have a level of security to for right. protecting that that Windows backup volume and repository, right? So <clears throat> I think that that's really where the line of demarcation comes down to is if you're if you're a data center and you're running a Linux environment and you're comfortable with that. You, you might go with the native uh, Veeam hardened Linux um, solution. For those customers that don't, that's where we shine. And we provide that easy, quick install that gives that level of protection against ransomware. And we've talked about that. That was one of my concerns as well, the, the one that you brought in. If you're, if you're an all-Windows shop, I, I, I'm not sure even if the, if, if the Linux option is more secure than having another Windows box. I'm not sure if it is more secure because it's your only Linux box, right? 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 If you if it's the only Linux box in your data center, I don't think that's a good idea. If it was your only Windows box in the data center, I don't think that's a good idea, right? Uh, just having a, a separate OS that you have to maintain just for a single purpose, you know, uh, I've never been a fan of that. But what why don't you... Um, give a little bit more about how, so, you know, it, it sounds like the product is incredibly simple to, uh, to explain. David, uh, do you want to give a, you know, an overview? It, it sounds like pretty easy to explain and Herbert's already given us an overview. You want to drill down a little bit? Sure. Sure. So, um, you know, maybe pick up where you, you, your comment about people adding something to their environment. I, I mean, I think that that's, that's the real challenge is it the IT, uh, and, and now if you add the security layer, whether it's a CISO, CSO, whatever they're doing, as long as we're not talking about the hardened uh, physical, these guys are overwhelmed. I mean, ransomware, is, is it's not a matter of uh, if it will happen. It's a matter of when it will happen. I think we've reached that point and, and every, everybody else has you know, confirmed that it's, um, it's going to be a risk they have to deal with. And so when they're looking for a solution, what we're finding is that the the antivirus and all these other type of tools that are out there are really not able to provide a, a way to protect that last, your last resort, which is your backup. So when the virus gets in, uh, it's sitting there. And the first thing they're going to go after are those backup files, right? So they're going to go disable that, attack that. And at some point later, right, because it's, it could be a, a Trojan horse where it's sitting there waiting and then it comes on. Um, you know, you've got this, this problem is that they're, you're, you're at the mercy of whoever the attacker was and what their demand is. And this is where the blocky really comes in. Um, as Herbert mentioned, what we're creating is a way to have cyber resiliency through zero trust. So when you enable um, blocky, which is a simple download, so you literally you download it and installs in, in less than 20 minutes, the first thing it's going to do is it's going to say, what is the trust? We're going to go right to creating the whitelist. And that whitelist is the trusted mm-hmm. applications or process, I should say, because it's Veeam in this um, in this case. And I'll, I'll leave a caveat here is that the way the way Grau built uh, Blocky as a technology, it can be applied to other applications. We've really focused on the mm-hmm. use case around uh, Veeam. So in general, you could say I have other applications and allow other application access. But the way we've tuned this to the Veeam market is Veeam specific. And so the only processes that you're really trying to identify is what's going to happen from the, the Veeam process to access that repository. 
So the first thing you do is either you manually set that or we have an auto, you can literally turn on the auto discover and we'll, we'll discover those processes. It's within, you set a period, let's say 24 hours, you run your backup, we know the process, you turn that off. And then at that moment, we're at zero trust. And so nothing else is going to go back in um, from a ransomware perspective and alter, modify, or delete because we've now applied that worm. Um, and, and for those, just to clarify, write once, read many, right? And, um, and that nothing's going to alter. It's immutable at this point, and you're now secure. So even if you had ransomware that was already in the system, at this point, they can't alter or, or, or modify those files. So reading the file out is simple and uh, verifying with through the fingerprint where we actually capture all the related elements to that process, including the DLLs. And that is combined to create that unique identifying fingerprint. So every time there's a request to modify or write, hey, we're checking, we're checking that. And if it's not an approved um, trusted application, we'll alert to it. And so now you get two, two benefits here. One is you've got the security through um, the protection of, of uh, blocky but second now you've got some alerting this is something that kind of caught me by surprise when when herbert said hey let's check this out was uh, the first customer that i talked to is they're like wow i've got a list i could see my applications that are trying to hit that that repository and they can now get some reporting and visibility and transparency and what's going on in their system and uh and they could take action so from in, that as anything well. anything else Anything outside of the already approved application would trigger an alert. I'm assuming. correct. Th thanks for clarity on that. That's absolutely right. correct. So they can now see, hey, look, I, you know, we've had these declined items, and so the admin now has some security. The second thing we did is we decoupled it, so it's not tied to the Veeam's uh, passwords and those admin passwords. It has a separate, independent, so it it has that uh, ability to uh, operate uh, without a risk of. Uh, uh, you know, global password type settings. And, um, and then of course the last, Ooh, I like that part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. I know. I know we always talk about Curtis about, yeah, don't put your backup servers on the same AD, right. As yeah. everything else. Yeah. So I'm glad Separation that you guys, have, that no, you no guys post are going a step further and separating it. Yeah. yeah. No, no well, I'm glad you guys are going a step further and not even having like the normal Veeam passwords as this authentication mechanism, because right. you really do want that more secure than everything else. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. This is this is your last so, resort, right? And we're and that's really the key is that we why do we back up? We pack up because only when we absolutely need that data. And if they take that down. So the blocky provides that additional layer of security and protection. Um, and it works, of course. Uh, you know, we, we have the ability to single site, multi-site, and and um, so it provides a this really simple way for Whoever is managing either the the IT stack or the you know the security stack to add a layer into uh, a product that is fantastic, right? I mean, Veeam, Veeam is uh, you know proven globally and customers love it, but now they can have that additional protection. Maybe one more comment from my side. People ask me what's the performance impact if I have Blocky installed. That's an important question. Yeah. Yep, the answer is while writing and reading zero. We don't do nothing. It's not like a virus kernel which always holds the process and then does not recognize the bad guy. So we do nothing while writing and reading. When it's deleting or modifying, we hold the process and check it because that's the purpose of Blocky. And then we have a 
uh, maybe a two to three percent overhead while deleting and modifying. And that's a cool combination. Yeah. Well, and especially because reading or sorry, deleting and modifying isn't your predominant uh, uh, operation, right? When of you're course doing backup, not. And if this right? happens, you want somebody to check it. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> now, one, one question that I have, uh, this will be my, my toughest question. Is there a way to defeat this product? So if I have admin on the box, what am I able to do? I know you. if the product is installed. If you, uh, if you want an honest answer, I can give you the honest answer. An admin can destroy the whole Windows machine. Right. And that's not possible to avoid, neither from Veeam, not from Crow, not from Microsoft today. Right. That's a pretty honest answer. Um, does that mean also that they could uninstall the product? And what no, would happen that's if protected. they did that? The uninstall is protected. Okay. How, the uninstall was a how, weak point two years ago, and that's protected. Okay. How... Um, I don't want to get into secret sauce, but how? In what way? Like how? How do you protect that? You need you need a password to go back and install. I mean, the I think the real security here is if you have, if you have the admin and they blow the box away, they blow the box away. I mean, so we're that's a physical security issue potentially, right? I think what I'm what I'm concerned about is not somebody who's you know. So we've got a malware in there, we've got a, a bad actor in there, and they're trying to surreptitiously access data that they're not supposed to access right so they would want to disable um this this tool and it sounds like that without the username and password from that tool they wouldn't be able to do that right i mean i mean so because blowing up the box they would they would obviously show their hand right so they're not likely to do that what they're likely to do is to try to disable anything that's trying to block their access Maybe maybe one interesting point is that we have sold Blocky also to one very large customer in Stuttgart, which has 100 uh, IBM backup servers from TSM, now Spectrum Scale. And that's a huge environment. And this is a corporate license we sold here. We're very, very proud about this. Uh, you may understand that we cannot... <laughs> give names out because yeah. in this ransomware right. world, nobody wants to read his name anywhere. Uh, but the right. point is that in the deep, in, in, in the TSM world, I still call it TSM. Um, and Curtis, you know, maybe <laughs> you too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, guys, we, call, we still call it TSM. I still, oh, call, yeah, really? I still call it ADSM. ADSM, by the way, yes, who, who knows that? Yeah. You yeah. Know? But uh, in the TSM world, there's also always a DB2 coming with a product. And what mm -hmm. was cool from my side is that we can also protect the DB2 data, mm. which opens potentially a market to applications that we also protect the database yeah. data. Exactly. That's our yeah. next step, potentially. And by the way, okay. that customer also had Veeam. Oh, I'm sorry, Herbert. Hmm? Oh, sorry? I, I was just going to say that that same customer, not just did they have TSM, but they also have Veeam. So they're they're happy. Well, most customers which have which you have TSM have other products other things. too. Right. Yep. 
so they're so they're now now that they're secure on their TSM, it add 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 the additional protections of their beam is where they're heading next um, as well. Well, I want to I want to thank you for uh, the, you know this has been a good, really good discussion. I, I've learned more about the you know obviously about all of the products that you do. We focused in on the end here on on Blocky for Veeam. Uh, and I think you've got a tremendous potential market. It has a lot of customers and every one of them has a Windows server that needs protecting. So uh, I, I wish you uh, the best of luck. And um, thanks so much for, for, for standing, for allowing us to stand between you and a beer, Herbert. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's a bottle of wine today. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Even better. nice. All right. Something Germany from the Rhine though. region, perhaps? Yeah. Uh, could be Rhine, could be Mosul. You know, we have some valleys here. Okay. <laughs> well, okay, well thank, thanks a lot, everybody, for, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. We appreciate and, the discussion. Uh, thanks, Curtis. Hmm. Thanks, Prasanna. Thank and, you all. Yeah, it's great. And, absolutely. And again, as always, we'll remember to uh, thank our listeners and uh, be sure to subscribe so that you can restore it all. Go!